Amen. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read our passage for today? Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil's come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Jonah had uh, heard the call of God to go to Nineveh a large city in probably the biggest city in the world at the time in the Assyrian Empire. And they were especially known for their brutality in warfare, their psychological warfare instilled fear in their enemies, of which Israel was one of them. And Jonah responded to God's call by booking a passage in the opposite direction from Nineveh. As far as he knew, I think the farthest city he probably knew of, which was uh, where the Mediterranean meets the Atlantic Ocean, he thought, I'm out of here. I don't want to go to those people. So he didn't say no to God. He just ran as far and as fast as he could. I think some of us can relate to that because we've done that very thing at some time in our lives. Unless maybe it's just me, but... Sometimes we don't even realize we're running, and sometimes we're not running, we're just gradually walking away because we're not drawing near. And usually when we're not drawing near, we're drifting away. No temptation faces us, the scripture says, except that which is common to man. So I know you all experience the same thing. Scripture tells me that's true. And so... Part of the lesson of Jonah here is to recognize, last week we talked about how he was asleep in the hold in the boat, is to recognize when we're drifting off, you know, when that heaviness overcomes our eyelids, but in the spiritual walk, our spiritual disciplines of taking time with the Lord, taking time in his word and fellowship, and then doing something about it, getting back into those disciplines that help us to stay awake spiritually. Verse 7 again, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So Jonah, as I said, he'd been asleep in the belly of the boat while the pagan mariners are up on the deck praying. And so the captain comes down, wakes him up, tells him, come on, come on up here and start calling on your God. Maybe he can save us. And though they were pagans, they had enough sense to know that something was spiritually happening, that this just wasn't a random storm, that it wasn't an accident. You know, it's too bad we don't have the sense of these pagans. We just think weather is a random event. God is the sovereign God over all creation. You know, we say things coincide, but that doesn't answer the reason why they coincided. There's a sovereign God that causes them to do so. 
the God of Israel, unlike the pagan gods, wasn't just a local God of that little area like the mariners may have thought. He's the God who is everywhere at all times. Amen. That's a, that's a big assurance. Jonah is about to find out there's nowhere that you can run from him. The psalmist wrote, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist felt that if he was in the sea, he was safe in the hands of God. Whereas Jonas thought, that safety was fleeing to where God was not present. So God caused this storm to rage around the ship in which they were, Jonah was trying to hide from God. And when God calls us, he won't let us just run away from him without consequences. God's going to discipline us. The book of Hebrews tells us because he's like a father and a good father disciplines his children. Happy Father's Day. That's part of our job as fathers, right? Maybe part we don't like so much, but it's an important part because it's a great expression of love when we discipline our children to guide them in the right way. When we say this way is harmful, this way is the good way for you to go. It's, it's, it's love. Um, I, I remember my parents would shed tears when they cut out that uh, paddle and disciplined me. And I needed a lot of discipline. So I saw a lot of tears from them, but it showed me they, they were doing it out of love and it hurt them. When they say it hurts me as much as it hurts you, they meant it. And that's, that's the love of a father, like our Father God. We recently considered the need for a healthy fear of God. It keeps us from contemplating temptation. If we know our Heavenly Father is going to discipline us for rebelling against Him and that He's going to do so for our good, we then consider the cost we might end up paying. And it's usually more than we ever would imagine it to be. Sin always costs more than you expect. After a few of those painful lessons, we find it's much easier uh, much more enjoyable just to do what he's asking us to do, to stay in his will, his loving will for our lives. But Jonah hadn't learned that yet. And even though he was a prophet of the Lord, as Second Kings 14.25 tells us, even if you're ministering for the Lord, you can run from his direction and need to learn the consequences of disobedience. The ancient people knew that God or gods were behind all that they experienced. You know, today we have education that educates us into imbecility. <laughs> We've been taught that complex organisms that we marvel at just happen by random chance over millions of years. You know, you have to really put your brain on pause to think that the intricate language of DNA just happened by accident. 
if modern man cannot make self-repairing machines that make their own parts out of their environment around them, how in the world can we think that our world with all its variety of living things just happened by accident? When the storm came, they wanted to know why. And they deduced that someone on the ship was the cause. Perhaps it was an unusual storm for the season. They woke Jonah, who was below deck asleep. He probably was so disturbed by God's call that he hadn't slept for days. And when he finally got on the ship, he felt safe that he was fleeing from God's presence and went sound asleep on that rocking boat. And that's understandable if he thought that he had escaped God's call and could now rest in his new direction for his life where he remains his own boss. That's what sin is all about being our own Lord. What he didn't realize is that he had just set in motion events that would be far worse than if he just obeyed God and gone to Nineveh. Now, casting lots, it says they were going to cast lots to determine. Casting lots was common in the world at that time and even in the Hebrew culture. The Bible refers to it a number of times as people try to discern the Lord's will. They would. There's a couple of ways they would do it. One way was to put a unique rock for each person in a jar, roll it around, and the first rock that comes out of the jar is the one. Or they would take a stones to two stones, black on one side, white on the other, and they would roll them. If it came up double black, it's no. If it came up black and white, it's roll again. If it came up white and white, it's a yes, you know? And so they would uh, try to cast lots to determine God's will. Actually, the scripture tells us in Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. In other words, God's involved in even the random uh, casting of lots. The disciples cast lots for who would take Judas's place. But after that, after Pentecost, we never read of casting of lots again. And that's because the Holy Spirit is at work within us to help us discern the answer, which is much more accurate than trusting stones. <laughs> so they cast lots. This is verse 7b and 8. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation and where do you come from? So the lot determined it was Jonah who was the cause of the storm. And you can just picture all the eyes of all the mariners looking at Jonah. What's going on? He's staring at him. Do you think it dawned on him then that you can't outrun God? There's no hiding from the one who is omnipresent. Jonah's heart must have started pounding, knowing that he'd been found out by God and by men. It was on his account this calamity had come upon them. Scriptures warn us that we can be sure that our sin will find us out. In this verse, when they said evil has come upon us, the word evil means calamity or this adversity. God never acts in an evil way. 
This storm is actually to save Jonah and to save Nineveh. Just as many storms we experience in our own lives are actually for our good. In other words, Jonah's God caused the storm for the benefit of many. And as we'll see later, this storm was full of God's grace and mercy. Jonah's creator could have just uh, created a great wave and drowned them all and been done with it. And he would have been perfectly just in doing so. That would be justice for disobedience to the one who gave him everything he had and called him to such a high calling as being a prophet. But we know the rest of the story and how God was patient with Jonah to teach him God's love for all of mankind. In the same way, God sends storms into our lives, not to destroy us, but to teach us and to discipline us. He wants to bless us by turning us from our destructive ways. It's natural to get upset when everything seems to go wrong, but if we are people of faith, we should stop in those moments, bow our heads, and ask God what he's trying to teach us. What good he's going to bring out of this to reveal his love in the process. Once the lot had fallen on Jonah, the mariners asked, what's going on? What, what's your country? What's your occupation? What people are you? It seemed as if they were giving Jonah a chance to try to talk his way out of it. Their gods, uh, the gods of the surrounding countries at the time, were very capricious and would get angry at individuals over, over little things. So they thought they needed to try harder to find out what, what he'd done, what sacrifice could he make? How could he fix this with his God? Uh, they thought maybe they needed to try to, a little harder to save themselves and this man. They're trying to determine if there's some kind of solution that can be found out. Jonah was about to help them understand the cause of the storm by confessing his sin. Confession is the only way to relieve ourselves from the burden of guilt. But since he's doing so before pagans, he has a new guilt of being a poor example of the Hebrews who serve the God of the Hebrews. Verse 9, And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah had not told them up to that point that he was a Hebrew, a prophet, or that he was from Israel. You know, when you're running from God, you don't want people to know you're a believer because you're in the midst of sin. He was forced to tell them, I'm a Hebrew. Now, the etymology of that word Hebrew is a little uncertain, but some people believe it means to cross over. That when Abraham crossed over the Euphrates, he became a Hebrew. He left the, that uh, um, area in between the Euphrates and the, the other river, and he'd crossed over into the other side. To, to come to the promised land. And it, so if that's the case, then he descended, Jonah has descended from the man, Abraham, who crossed over, who in whom God said all the world would be blessed. God's chosen people to bring the revelation of God to the world. That's what Jonah was running away from. He didn't want to be a blessing to the world. 
The prophet Isaiah lived around the same time and he predicted that salvation would come to the world, to the nations of the world through the Messiah who would be of Jewish descent. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, he said. Hmm. He says he fears the creator. This speaks of his faith and the declaration of his belief in the Genesis account. But if he really believes God and fears God and reverences holiness and justice, what's he doing running from God? At some time in our lives, I think we can all relate to fearing God and yet not doing what we know we're called to do. We presume upon God's grace and hope that he'll just kind of look the other way. And that's really to think that we have a better plan than God does for our lives. But God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He sees all. He knows all. Our hope to hide from him is wishful thinking and misguided because disobedience has to be dealt with. That's because God is a loving father who loves his children enough to discipline them. When my wife first came to the United States, uh, this was uh, in the 80s, um, she was under the impression that everyone in America was a Christian. Yeah, it's, yeah, you can laugh, it's okay. She only met my family and a few other believers, and, and so she thought that that was the case, but she soon, of course, found out that wasn't remotely true. Who are we? Where did we come from? And sadly, if we say we're citizens of the United States, it doesn't conjure up thoughts of godliness that it might once have done. Even if we say we reverence the creator of the land and sea, secular people will just roll their eyes as our educational institutions have turned against God, teaching that we should all just yield to our desires. They claim the Bible is just one of many myths while ignoring its historical accuracy. Our culture's moving away from faith and facts to its own perverse man-centered ideology. And if it continues and God doesn't send revival, it will be the demise of our nation. The family is the foundation of any society. And that's why the enemy is attacking the family unit. That's why I rejoice to see great big families that visit our church. Psalm 36, 1 to 3 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. Where there's no fear of God, evil reigns. And that is what Jonah thought of Nineveh. That's where our nation seems to be headed. But Jonah's actions made it true of him as well. Martin Buber makes the following helpful comment. 
Fear of God never means to the Jews that they ought to be afraid of God, but that trembling, they ought to be made aware of his incomprehensibility. It's the dark gate through which man must pass if he's to enter into the love of God. He who wishes to avoid passing through the gate, he who begins to provide for himself a comprehensible God, constructed thus and not otherwise, runs the risk of having to despair of God in the view of actualities of history and life or of falling into inner falsehood. Only through the fear of God does man enter so deep into the love of God that he can't, cannot again be cast out of it. I'm going to read it again. I know it's Old English and it's a little hard to comprehend, but it's really rich. Fear of God never means the Jews to the Jews that they ought to be afraid of God, but that trembling they ought to be made aware of his incomprehensibility. It is the dark gate through which man must pass if he is to enter into the love of God. He who wishes to avoid passing through this gate, he who begins to provide for himself a comprehensible God, constructed thus and not otherwise, runs the risk of having to despair of God in view of the actualities of history and life, or of falling into inner falsehood. Only through the fear of God does man enter so deep into the love of God that he cannot again be cast out of it. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So actually the mariners were more spiritual in nature than modern man. When they heard that Jonah was a worshiper of the creator, of land and sea, the God of heaven, they knew they were in serious trouble, exceedingly afraid. If Jonah had said some, some little family God or some Greek God, I, I don't think it would have caused the same reaction. Apparently, they knew something of the God of Israel. He was the creator of the sea, and if so, then he could do with them whatever he willed to punish this rebel. Jonah never answered really the question of where he came from. The mariners figured it out. He came from the presence of the Lord. That's where Jonah had lived as a prophet. Sin causes us to leave his presence. He's still there, but there's no communion. We all should live in the presence while communing with him. Where are you from? Where do you live? Or is the world and its concerns all you think about? Is it entertainment or fellowship with God that fills the silent moments of your life? You know, the origins of our word amusement uh, is negative. Muse is to think and it literally means away from thinking. Their response to Jonah's confession of fleeing from the presence of the Lord shows us he, they had more spiritual sense than Jonah. What? 
you flee from a God that made the sea in a boat on the sea? What are you thinking? Are you crazy? What have you done wasn't a question. In ESV, you'll see there's an exclamation point behind it. What have you done wasn't a question about the nature of Jonah's sin, but an exclamation of horror. They were frightened to the depths of their being. They were believers in the sense that they could see that a Hebrew who fled from the Creator wasn't in his right mind. They had a clearer sense of what was happening than Jonah did. They may have thought that if Jonah God sends this storm because he doesn't obey a command, how many of that God's commands had they broken? What do we deserve for our transgressions against such a great and holy God? You know, it's so humbling when the world, a worldly person rebukes our behavior. Have you ever had that happen? It's really humbling. I remember one time uh, I was, I have a terrible habit of when I'm talking and driving, I just can't do both very well at the same time. And I cut, in, I cut some guy off in an intersection and I'm back in my car, it says bible-sermons.org, you know. And the guy pulled up beside my car and glared at me. And I thought, oh man, I wasn't a terrible example. I didn't mean to do it. I shouldn't have been talking. <laughs> I should have been just driving. But I felt so bad about that. It happens, you know, when the world wags their finger at us and says, I thought you were a Christian. It may be something they say or it just might be one of those looks. And then it hits us. We were a poor representation of our Lord. And it failed to be the difference that we're supposed to be with, with, with those who have the name Christian. It was the pagans who joined together to cry out their gods while Jonah slept. Jonah's testimony was terrible in its initial concern for the crew, but his confession that the that God of the Hebrews is the God of creation caused the men to reverence this God. And that's why they feared exceedingly. We should never let our old nature tell us that we can flee from the presence of the Lord or just dismiss what he's spoken to us. We end up being a poor testimony to the world when our high calling is to share his love and his greatness. I pray regularly that I might be aware of the Lord's presence in my life. And that's one way to maintain the fear of the Lord, but it also makes us aware that we are his instruments available for his use whenever he wishes, in any time, in any place. We talk about Jesus living in our hearts, but are we aware of his presence and what it means to us and how his presence should affect our words and our actions wherever he's placed us? What is this you have done? They said. You know, whenever you see um, a word in Scripture and you're not sure what it means, uh, someone told me one time, go back to the original use of the very first use of the word in Scripture, and it will really help you get a, a fuller sense of the meaning. Do you know where the first time this phrase was uttered? 
when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God said to them, what is this you have done? The second time it was used is after Cain killed Abel. The very same phrase, not a question. It's an explanation of horror. Did Adam, when, or did Jonah, when he heard that, realize he was doing the very thing Adam and Eve had done? The very thing that Cain had done. Ignore God's commands and do your own thing. I believe the Spirit of God addresses us in the same way. That's what we call conviction. Amen? The Holy Spirit causes us to feel guilty when we're disobedient. It weighs on us. It haunts us as we look over our shoulder expecting the discipline of God. For the unbelievers, it either drives them to repentance, leading to salvation, or the hardening of their heart. For us as believers, it leads us to repentance as well. Else we harden our hearts, which results in more compromise. Thankfully, the word of God tells us that by confession and repentance, communion with God is restored and we can have peace again. The grace of God is about to show up in the form of an enormous fish. You know, grace comes in many different forms. Think about Joseph. Do you think when he was sold into slavery, falsely accused, forgotten about in prison, he was thinking, wow, the grace of God is so wonderful? I don't think so. Yet he always expressed faith and never seems to whine or complain about his situation. He was a man of God. Our trust in our omnipotent, omnipresent God will see us through the storms or we give in to despair, one or the other. The fear of God, which is the awe and reverence of the incomprehensibility of the wonder of him, must be what we rely upon in times when we can't understand the trouble that we're enduring. And that takes faith, but it's faith that's well-grounded in scripture and in countless testimonies. Last week we saw in the first six verses of Jonah the need for us to wake up to our true condition before God. It went right along with the end of our study in 2 Corinthians that tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And actually with Wednesday night's Bible study in Acts 4 and 5. And today we see in this passage the importance of receiving conviction, repentance, confessing our sins so that our communion with God and our testimony to the world is restored. These first 10 verses in Jonah have shown us fallen man's tendency to disobey and to try to hide from God. It's a pattern that goes all the way back to the beginning in the garden. But the coming passages, we're going to see that Jonah becomes a foreshadow of Christ and what he's going to do for us. So next week, we're going to see if the big fish is a fish story or if it's an historical account. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction. <laughs>